Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Friday, November 8th. And as always, thanks so much for joining me. On today's show, I will be talking with the first vice president of the Kamloops Thompson Teachers Association. Earlier this week, I spoke with school board chair Kathleen Carpuck. The board met this week to discuss a number of items, including class size. It received a report where it showed the average class size across the district. Those were kindergarten, 18.3 students per class, grades 1 to 19.9 students per class, grades 4 to 7, 23.7 students, and grade 8 to 12, 23.1 students per class. Carpuck had stated that the board was relatively pleased with those numbers. So we're pretty happy with that. They're uh, manageable class sizes. Uh, if you read the report, you will notice that we do have some classes that are over 30. They're all in the high school, and they're all associated with band or physical education. And that's where having larger numbers is, uh, especially with band and choir, not a bad thing, because the more voices, the more instruments that you have, um, the more fulsome sound that you get. Well, the Teachers Association has a bit of a different view when it comes to those numbers. The message that they are conveying is that it's about a lot more than just numbers. I caught up with the first vice president of the KTTA yesterday, and I'll be playing my chat with Darcy Martin in about 10 minutes' time. I'll also be talking a little bit about dinosaurs. Yes, British Columbia officially has its very own dinosaur. Yes, this week it was announced that a handful of bones belonging to a Triceratops-like specimen discovered in 1971 by a geologist near the Sustat River in BC's north-central interior has been identified. The fossilized bones of the Ferrosaurus Sustatnesis I definitely said that wrong, or the iron lizard from the Sustat River have actually been right under researchers' noses for years, but weren't correctly identified until now. The fossils were eventually donated to Dalhousie University in 2005 before winding up in the Royal BC Museum in 2007. Victoria Arbor, curator of paleontology at the museum, has been studying the fossils and has now determined that they belong to a whole new kind of dinosaur. It's said that the ferrosaur resembled its larger cousin, the Triceratops, but it lacked horns. The dinosaur had a parrot-like beak, ate only plants, and measured about 5 foot 7 inches in length and 330 pounds in weight. That equals uh, 1.75 meters in length and 150 kilograms. But you know what? I just had to use the imperial system for that one. Uh, one day we here in Canada will stop having that association with the United States and start measuring everything using the metric system, uh, the system that, of course, makes far more sense in my brain. Unfortunately, I am not there yet, and I think most other people in this country feel the same way. Whenever someone asks me about my height uh, in centimeters, I have to pull out my license and check. You know, I say I'm uh, six foot one, or... Uh, you know, fumble through my wallet. Uh, what is that in centimeters? Oh, 185 centimeters. So needless to say, I have some beef with the imperial system. So I used uh, feet and uh, pounds to measure this dinosaur. And uh, well, what the heck was I actually talking about? Right, of course, Jurassic Park music. Talking about dinosaurs, uh, the ferrosaurs. So Victoria Arbor, curator of paleontology at the museum at the BC Royal Museum, is pretty excited about this new discovery, and she has agreed to join me to kick off the back half 
of today's program. So that should be a fun discussion that will take me back to my early childhood when dinosaurs were just about the coolest thing going. So I'll be speaking with Victoria, with Victoria in a little bit. And to end off today's program... I will be joined by Kamloops Legion Branch 52 President Craig Thompson as we help get you ready for this Monday. Of course, Monday is Remembrance Day, November 11th, the time to remember Canadian veterans, both past and present. A day where we think about the sacrifices that they have made to allow us to have the freedoms that we enjoy today. Uh, a brief history, the tradition of Remembrance Day evolved out of Armistice Day. The initial Armistice Day was observed at Buckingham Palace, commencing with King George V hosting a banquet in honor of the President of the French Republic during the evening hours of November 10th. 1919. The first official Armistice Day was subsequently held on the grounds of Buckingham Palace the following morning. Uh, during the Second World War, many countries changed the name of the holiday. Member states of the Commonwealth of Nations adopted Remembrance Day, while the U.S. chose Veterans Day. So we here in Canada will celebrate Remembrance Day nationwide at the 11th hour of the 11th day on the 11th month. And for us here in Kamloops, the ceremonies at the Cenotaph in Riverside Park will commence at 10.45. The program includes the mounting of the Cenotaph Guard, the Color Party and Veterans Company will march, and then following the ceremonies, there will be a parade from the Cenotaph with all units participating. Uh, the parade will be held by the Kamloops Pipe Band. So, it should be a touching day that will undoubtedly move those in attendance. Now looking briefly here at Monday's weather, as it stands right now, Environment Canada is predicting cloudy skies, 60% chance of showers, and a high of just 6 degrees. So be sure to check the weather before you head down to Riverside Park there on Monday morning and dress accordingly. It is a time to remember our fallen soldiers, not a time to remember that you forgot an umbrella. So make sure that you are prepared and uh, make sure you get down there early because there is always an issue when it comes to parking. Of course, there is uh, free parking because it is uh, Monday and it is a holiday. So people make sure you uh, get down there early so you can find a place to park and uh, park yourself also in a spot where you will be able to see the ceremony and enjoy the ceremony and take part in uh, everything that comes with Remembrance Day. Coming up after the break, I'll be chatting with the Kamloops Thompson Teachers Association about their feelings on class sizes in the district, and I will have a little bit more on that after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Friday, November the 8th. And thanks, as always, for tuning in. I was joined by the chair of the Kamloops Thompson School Board earlier this week following their board meeting on Monday night. And one of the things they were presented with, with was the average class size that uh, they are seeing across the district this year. Uh, in kindergarten, it was reported that there were about 18.3 students per class. Grades 1 through 3, 19.9 students per class. 4 to 7, 23.7 students. And in grades 8 to 12, 20. 3.1 students. I'm joined now by Darcy Martin, the first vice president of the Kamloops Thompson Teachers Association, to talk about this information. Darcy, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, thanks for having us, Jeff. So the board is relatively happy with these class size numbers, but uh, from what I understand, I guess the Kamloops Thompson Teachers Association is singing a, a bit of a different tune here. Well, I, I don't think of us as singing a tune, actually. I think of us as 
raising concerns, very serious ones. Singing a tune seems a bit light to me, um, and for us, it's very serious. We have concerns um, with the new prevalence model that the provincial government is proposing, and we have concerns about class uh, composition and class size in, in our own district. So, given the fact that you have concerns, I guess, what would things look like ideally for you guys? If you could choose and have the perfect uh, recipe here for what a class size would look like, I guess, what, what would you guys, what would your message be? Well, I guess what we want is optimum learning conditions for all students in every class. And it, it is a little hard to put an exact number on that in every situation. Of course, we want to see our collective agreement respected. But in general, I think that we would say that class size looks more like the restored language from 2002 that we had restored um, if it were applied the way that it was in 2002, where there were a maximum of three ministry-designated students in each class, and that was the maximum. That language has been redefined by the district, we feel, and it means now that while there will be a maximum of three what we call low incidence um, individual education plan students in the class. Um, they, teachers often have more than three IEPs in their class. Um, and we think that comp compos composition, pardon me, matters. Um, it's not just about bums and seats. I think that's what teachers are unhappy about, <clears throat> that they would say that bums and seats is not the simple measure or really a true reflection of class size, that okay. there are individual contexts individual student needs and situations, and support, of course, is important for those students, too. Can you just uh, define what that means, uh, what a ministry-designated student is? Well, students with special needs have, uh, I guess, designations or categories based on um, professional assessment about what their needs are. So, for example, one might be autism or someone might have a chronic health designation or a moderate or se severe behavior, uh, visual vision, uh, learning disabilities, hearing, all, okay. of, all of those kinds of special needs. It's just a way to, um, in some cases, target funding to students, but also just to identify what their needs are. And that's critical for teachers because the way we instruct and the changes and adaptations and modifications we make in our classrooms, universal design, that that's all very important. Okay. No, that's fair enough. It's just a term I, I was unfamiliar with, so I just wanted mm -hmm. to make sure I knew what I was uh, asking there. So class size and composition is something that, you know, I've been, when I've been speaking with the BC Teachers Federation, that it's a big part of the bargaining process that's ongoing right now. Here in Kamloops Thompson, I would think that there would be probably fewer students than if you look somewhere like Vancouver. So, I mean, are teachers here seeing less students? And because it's going to be a provincial wide contract that is eventually signed here, right? So, how do you weigh the needs here in Kamloops Thompson versus somewhere like the Lower Mainland? Well, I, I think that's one of our concerns with the prevalence model that the ministry is, um, is trying to push. Uh, we want to see actual. Uh, you know, what's actually the students who are actually in our classrooms, we want to see their needs met. We want to see um, that we know who they are, that their funding is targeted to them, and we don't want to see block funding that's just sort of applied generally, and the students who really need the supports don't necessarily get it. Um, one of the difficulties in our district is that our district is using bums and seats and what they call a flex factor. So for example, um, and I think that's the problem with looking at class averages, class size averages and saying everything's great. You know, for example, the class limit for kindergarten is 20 and the class size average in the district is 18. 
ish or whatever it was. So, um, but we have actual situations in a classroom, for example, where there are 20 students, so 20 bums in seats, as they would say, um, but there's an individual education plan and the class size hasn't been reduced to 19. And that affects teachers' workload um, and it makes it difficult to meet the needs of all students. I would say that our teachers um, are feeling overwhelmed that they can't meet the needs of students with resources available and our teachers get frustrated because we see the potential in our students and when we don't have the supports to help them get there, um, that's really crushing for teachers. The, the whole system needs increased funding overall. Yeah, I was going to basically ask a question that you kind of stole from me there. I was going to say, what, what has the impact been from, from a teacher's perspective? Are they feeling overwhelmed? You said they are a little bit. And can you talk a little bit about the impact that that has on students? Because obviously if teachers aren't able to fully, um, you know, put their work first, as, as so to speak, if you will, um, I mean, obviously that's going to have a, an effect on the ability of students to learn. It does. And, you know, I, I don't know how we fix that, I guess. You know, hiring more teachers is a starting point. Um, in our district, we still are regularly short teachers teaching on call to cover classes, and that adds to teachers' workloads because either someone is being pulled from their own position to cover a class or the, the job that needs to be done by the TTOC isn't done and the teacher has that to come back to. Um, we still have positions open in the district that aren't filled, ed um, specialists like ed psychs, uh, speech pathologists, um, it's difficult to find counselors and learning assistance teachers. And then that means that those um, children don't get what they need. It means wait times for student assessment and support. It means they don't have the same access to small group and individualized attention. So that's where it really impacts everyone, all of the students. So this is a this is a really difficult issue. I mean, to, to even try to tackle because there's just so many different factors at play here. Um, is that is that one of the things that you find really difficult? Because I'm I'm just looking at sheer numbers, right? When I was talking about this earlier in the week, just saying you know about 20 students per class. That sounds pretty reasonable just from a, a pure number standpoint. And when I grew up in Ontario, you know, we were looking at 25 to 30 plus students in a class, so 20 students seemed relatively reasonable to me, but it's about a lot more than numbers and a lot more about resources, and it's just a really difficult issue to kind of wrap my brain around. I mean, is that kind of the same way that you guys look at it just from a, an operational point of view? Well, yes, it's, it's complex. Um, I think we should expect education to be complex. We, you know, I know that the public sees a big picture, much like you're saying, uh, but really teachers in the classroom are trying to meet the needs of their individual students. Um, and when it's difficult to attract teachers uh, or when positions are unfilled, um, that, that adds to the picture. But I think that the government needs to provide additional resources and funding. We have, you know, one of the challenges for teachers is a new curriculum that's been implemented. We're looking at individualized learning. There's new content in areas. We still don't have um, the resources, the teaching materials to, to match some of those changes. Teachers are still spending out of uh, pocket. We've got district and provincial assessments. All of these things um, that impact teachers' workload directly impact student learning. And it's complicated, um, but we, we think that the government can hire people smart enough to do it. <laughs> 
Uh, you would hope so. Anyway, I'm sure they're out there, or at least some people with some good ideas to be able to make yeah. a difference. I guess uh, one more question here for you, Darcy. I mean, we are in the midst of uh, an ongoing contract negotiation between teachers uh, in the in the province and, and with the provincial government. So do you think that there will be some, I mean, we're not going to have a perfect solution, obviously, as a result of negotiations, but do you think there'll be some progress made as a result of this? I mean, the BCTF seems to be pushing hard for, uh, you know, some, some improvements as to why this is dragging on so long. That's got to be a big reason is because there is some some challenges that you guys are pointing out that are being faced by teachers across the province that they're trying to help resolve. Uh, do, do you think we'll see some progress one when a new contract is in fact signed? Well, <clears throat> that that I won't predict, um, but I would say that we're always looking for positive changes that improve student learning because that's what we do. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That was Darcy Martin, the first vice president with the Kamloops Thompson Teachers Association. And uh, of course, as mentioned throughout the course of that interview, the uh, teachers are continuing to bargain for a new contract with the province. So a quick update on that ongoing contract dispute. Labor Relations Board mediator David Shaw released a report on November 1st, so last week, about one week ago. Uh, it states that a contract deal between BC's teachers and the Employers Association is nowhere in sight after 67 bargaining days. It says it's evident that there is a disconnect between the parties that will not allow them to reach a collective agreement. He said the BC Teachers Federation and BC Public Schools Employers Association have a win-lose approach to bargaining. He says that must be abandoned in favor of collaboration and problem solving. The contract, of course, expired in June. Now, teachers are looking for a 2% wage increase in each of the three years of a 2019 through 2022 contract. Teachers have been concerned about the fact that they are not close to the current national average salary. That, of course, makes it difficult to attract new teachers or convince qualified teachers to stick around here in B.C. when they can, of course, make more money elsewhere. The sides have met for 51 days before the mediator was appointed on June 18th. He met with the sides for 16 days, but no agreements were able to be reached. Neither side could comment uh, on this issue for uh, reasons of a media blackout that was requested by the mediator. So that media blackout has been in effect for some time now. Uh, Shav adds that only one collective agreement has been reached without government or outside intervention since 1987. So uh, over 30 years before, uh, since the last contract was able to be reached without outside intervention. So contract negotiations are clearly never an easy thing to navigate, and the BCTF and the BCPSEA are continuing to try and come to terms on a new contract. So hopefully something can be resolved soon, and we can have some news on that here to break down on this show. Coming up after the break, I'll have a more... Uh more uplifting chat here talking all about dinosaurs. Yes, this week it was announced that a new dinosaur species has been discovered and it is unique to the province. I'll be chatting more about that after this. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show here on Friday, November 8th. And thanks as always for tuning in. Uh, about 50 years ago, a geologist discovered a mysterious claw in rocks along a rail line in BC's northern wilderness. And that discovery has just recently led to the first dinosaur species that is unique to BC being discovered. I'm joined now by Victoria Arbors, the Royal BC Museum's curator of paleontology. Victoria, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, this is a pretty cool story in, in my books. I mean, uh, a 
dinosaur unique to BC. I mean, were you surprised? And, and how did this kind of information come to be? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really excited that we've been able to announce this new dinosaur species. Um, it's it's a story that started back in 1971. A geologist was walking along um, a railway line that was in construction up in northern BC, um, about 200 kilometers north of Smithers, um, and he discovered these bones, and that's led to today it being identified as a new species of dinosaur after uh, it sort of got donated into a museum and after several years of research and trying to figure out exactly what these little bones were. Can you take me through sort of how that works, how you go from getting these little bones to figuring out, yes, this is it's a, a new species of dinosaur that is unique to this province? I mean, that seems like it would be a difficult thing to go about doing. It is, but it's also a pretty fun thing to be able to do. Um, so there would be a few things that would have made this project a little bit easier. Um, the, the, the skeleton is fragmentary, and unfortunately it's missing some of the most easily identifiable pieces, like the skull, for example. So that's partly why it was a bit of a challenge. But the way that we approach um, figuring out new species and new dinosaur species is we make observations of the shape and sizes and proportions of the bones that we have. We look for unique features. We look for features that link that particular bone with other dinosaur species that might be close relatives. In this particular instance, um, I traveled to a bunch of other museum collections and took notes and photographs and measurements, and I sketched the bones uh, to compare closely related species, so dinosaurs that we figured were probably its close relatives but were more complete. And then you start to try to figure out if... Um, the, the bones that you have match any of the species that are already known, or if they don't quite match those, then you might have a new species. Okay, so given all of that, so this is called the Ferrosaurus. Am I saying that right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so the Ferrosaurus, I guess, can you describe to people, since we're a radio, so we don't have visuals, <laughs> sort of what this thing might look like? Is there other dinosaurs that it might be comparable to? Um, sort of. So Ferrosaurus belongs to a group of dinosaurs called the Leptoceratopsidae, which is not a, a super household name group of dinosaurs. Uh, but these are close cousins to uh, dinosaurs like Triceratops, which is a pretty famous dinosaur. So instead of having the huge frill and horns on the face like Triceratops, picture making a really small Triceratops with a short frill, no horns on the face, but that same sort of deep jaw and parrot-like beak. Um, it's a dinosaur that would have walked around on four legs. It had a relatively short tail, all things considered, and um, it was a plant eater. Okay. Very interesting. So I'm trying to, to picture it in my mind. I guess if people were to come to the museum, I mean, what, how, how would they be able to see sort of what you guys have collected so far? Because you said you're missing things like the skull, so you won't get a complete bone structure. Um, what, what would people see if they were to come to the museum? Yeah, so the dinosaur is on display at the Royal BC Museum right now in something called our Pocket Gallery, which showcases sort of ongoing and new discoveries and research by uh, museum staff. And um, we've got the bones sort of laid out on a diagram of what um, ferrosaurus would have looked like. So there's sort of an outline of the body shape. And then we've got the bones arranged on top of that diagram to show what pieces we actually have. So it's a little bit easier for people to interpret exactly what we've got. So now that you have like a, a good chunk, I guess, of what the skeleton would look like, I mean, are you, is, is work ongoing to try to find the missing pieces, if you will? 
Yeah. So in 2017, I was uh, really fortunate to be able to lead uh, a trip up to the Sustut River, where the dinosaur was originally found, to try to look for more of it. So quite a long time had passed. Um, and when it was first discovered, that was sort of in the era before, like, everybody had a handheld GPS or a phone on them, so we didn't have exact coordinates. But we worked off of, like, air photos and the field notes by the geologist who had originally collected it. And we got pretty much to the exact spot where the dinosaur was first collected. So didn't find any more bones for this particular guy, but we did find part of a fossil turtle. And we also found lots and lots of fossil plants, which gives us an idea of what the environment looked like at that time. Uh, I'm here with the Royal BC Museum Curator of Paleontology, Victoria Arbor. So, I mean, that I assume that doesn't end your search, though, just because you were unsuccessful maybe in that spe- specific trip. Yeah, that's right. So um, that particular area we might not go back to again because a lot of the rock has been sort of overgrown by new vegetation. So all of this rock that was exposed while the railway was being constructed is now being reclaimed by nature. Um, But that's not the end of the story because, in fact, in north-central British Columbia, there's a huge sort of basin, a geological feature that has rocks of the right age and type to preserve dinosaur fossils. It's just that it's really hard to get to because there's no roads and a lot of it you can only be accessed by like jet boat or helicopter. Last summer though, um, in my new role at the Royal BC Museum, I led an expedition up into Spatsizi Plateau Wilderness Provincial Park, which is located um, kind of up near Dease Lake in northern BC. And we did actually have some luck uh, finding a spot that had some fragmentary dinosaur bones. Unfortunately, the next day it snowed, so we had to call our trip short. But we'll be going back next summer and hopefully finding uh, some more northern BC dinosaurs. That's super awesome. Um, when, When you do these kinds of trips, how long do you typically spend? So uh, we'll probably go for about two weeks. So we're in this kind of exploratory phase, and we're just trying to figure out what might be there. We go for enough time to get a feel for things, but not for too long in case um, we actually don't find anything. So two weeks is kind of a good amount of time to hike around, see what's there, and then make plans if there's something really large that needs to be excavated in the future. Uh, can you t- describe it all to me, like how you would go about even having a an inkling that there might be something to start digging for? I mean, it just seems uh, like a needle in a haystack, right? You're looking for bones out <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. So how do you kind of decide, hey, look, there might be something here? Yeah, so there's a couple of steps to it. The first is that we don't just walk anywhere. So if I want to look for dinosaurs, I need rocks that are the right age to have dinosaurs preserved in them because dinosaurs, of course, are extinct for the last 67 million years or 66 million years. So we don't want to look in rocks that are too young. Um, And we want to look for rocks that are the right type that can actually preserve fossils. So things laid down by rivers or lakes rather than by volcanoes, for example. Um, So once we sort of narrow those things down, um, sometimes you have to just go and like basically get dropped off by helicopter and hike around and look at the ground. It's very old fashioned, not particularly high tech, uh, involves a lot of hard work, but is also a lot of fun and very rewarding when it works out well. Yeah, definitely. It sounds difficult, but uh, very fun when you do come across something. Um, What can you tell me, I guess, about um, what the the fair source in terms of what it means for uh, the dinosaur life, I guess, if you will, in BC? Is there anything you can learn from this particular species of dinosaur that's been discovered that's unique to the province that can kind of tell you about how things were from the dinosaur world uh, when this thing was walking around? Yeah, Ferrosaurus is really neat because it's part of a group of dinosaurs that aren't really well known anywhere else in the world. So we have some some examples, but they're pretty rare dinosaurs overall. So that's a pretty cool thing to have found as one of like a, a sort of random surprise discovery 
it's not the kind of dinosaur I would have expected someone to just find out of the blue. So that's pretty cool. Um, so it tells us that we've got some sort of interesting things going on in terms of what types of dinosaurs can get preserved up here. Um, Ferrosaurus lived about 67 to 68 million years ago, and it would have lived in this kind of little valley in between mountains rising to the west and to the east. If you hop over the mountains and go into what's now Alberta and Montana, the dinosaurs that lived there at that time period are things like T-Rex and Triceratops. So the question now is, are the rest of the dinosaurs in BC all unique species, or do we have the potential to find a British Columbian Tyrannosaurus Rex at some point in the future, which I think would be pretty cool too. Oh, it'd definitely be pretty cool. Like, you think there's the possibility of having basically a, a BC Tyrannosaurus Rex, if you will, like a, yeah, a certain type of T-Rex? that would be only, you know, found here? It's possible. So these are the sorts of questions that we ask is we're in a slightly different environment. Do we have slightly different species? Do some species that are found in Alberta make their way into British Columbia? Um, and we can only really test those hypotheses by finding more fossils. That's, that's, that sounds pretty fun. I really hope that this comes about and, and we see, start seeing more of these species come up. Um, uh, can you, so you kind of went over some of the more common, I guess, um, types of dinosaurs that would be seen in Alberta, and, and that sounds like it would probably be the same. Um, if you are able to find anything more, that they would likely be similar in BC, what we see in Alberta already? Yeah, we would, we would expect to see similar dinosaurs in general. So we might have unique species like we saw with Ferrosaurus, but we might also expect to see dinosaurs like duck-billed dinosaurs, um, dome-headed dinosaurs like Pachycephalosaurus, um, armored dinosaurs like Ankylosaurus, um, these are all possibilities uh, for things that we might find in the future in British Columbia up in this sort of north-central region. Awesome. Um, how, how um, I guess, frequent are people out there looking for, for new dinosaur bones? I mean, you, you mentioned kind of uh, you're out a few times this summer. Um, I assume you're not the only group that's out doing that. I mean, do you know how often expeditions are taking place here in, in B.C.? Yeah, so BC is home to lots and lots of really interesting fossil localities, but there hasn't been as much attention paid to um, dinosaur fossils in the province, uh, with the exception of the work that's happened in the northeastern part in Tumbler Ridge and the Peace region. So there are some really cool discoveries that have happened up in that area. Uh, BC is also very, very rich in dinosaur footprints, which is pretty unique and not really found elsewhere in Canada, so that's also really cool. But this kind of represents a new research direction for the Royal BC Museum and for the province, and I'm just really excited about where it's going to lead us over the next few years. Yeah, well, I hope you guys find some more stuff because this is a, a really cool story. I think that, uh, you know, it's something that people should be aware of is happening because, um, I don't know, it just sparked a little kid in me, you know, the one that used to watch uh, <laughs> Land Before Time and all those movies growing up. I, uh, this just took me back to that. So thanks so much for doing this, Victoria. Anything else that you think people should know about the Ferrosaurus before I let you go? Uh, no, I can't really think of anything. Um, I mean, I can, I could probably talk your ear off all day about Ferrosaurus, <laughs> but I think we've covered a lot of ground. And yeah, I'm just uh, really excited that we get to share this cool part of BC's fossil heritage with the world now. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on uh, being able to, uh, you know, prove that this unique species existed here in BC. And uh, good luck moving forward on finding the skull. I hope we can find that and put this whole skeleton together. Yeah, thanks so much. That was Victoria Arbor, the Royal BC Museum's curator of paleontology. Coming up after the break, this Monday is Remembrance Day, and I'll be speaking with Kamloops Legion Branch 52 President Craig Thompson to tee it up after this. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com.
Welcome back here on Friday, November 8th, and thanks as always for tuning in. This Monday, of course, marks Remembrance Day, and here to help tee up what is in store in the city, and of course why it's important to celebrate and commemorate in Kamloops, is Kamloops Legion Branch 52 President Craig Thompson. Craig, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. So let me just kick things off by sort of asking what your plan is for Monday specifically. Well, it's the annual Remembrance Day service and parade. So um, the ceremony will be at Riverside Park again as normal. Um, if people are going to be there, I'd like them to be there before quarter to 11. Um, at quarter to 11, we march on the Cenotaph Guard. About five or six minutes after that, we will march on the color party, and then the ceremony begins from there. So you want people basically showing up maybe by 10.30 almost, just to give them that little buffer time? Well, anybody that's been there in the past realizes how many people are uh, usually come to these things. So if you want a better view, then yeah, the earlier you get there, the better. How many people typically show up to this particular ceremony? Last year, we estimated that there was between 5,500 and 6,000 people uh, in Riverside Park at the Remembrance Day ceremony. And, and when you see a crowd of that kind of size, I guess, you know, how, how does that make you feel sort of as a member of the Legion? You know, I mean, does that show you that people really do care about this and, and take the time to remember? Absolutely, it does. It just um, actually it kind of brings a tear to my eye when I look over and see all of the troops that are on parade and all of the people that are there and all the kids that are there to to remember and to celebrate this this occasion of, of remembrance uh, with with everyone, you know, to remember our veterans and those who've gone before us. And, I mean, who does it almost mean more to? Do you think, does it mean more to, to veterans themselves or do you look at, like, the families and think of just how much this means to, to some of the people who, you know, who have lost loved ones to, to incidents of war or, or while they were overseas or just serving? You know, I mean, it obviously brings a tear to everybody and touches everybody in some way. I'm just sort of thinking, who does this almost impact more so? I would say that it probably impacts the families as much as it does the veterans that are on parade as well, uh, just to to know that people have come out to remember and people come out to support those that are currently serving. It's, it's, it's a great, uh, great thing. I mean, when people come uh, to, to, to commemorate, to celebrate, I guess, is there any sort of uh, message that you want to convey to them specifically? Is it just a matter of, hey, take the time to, to have a moment of silence and think about those that, are, that have been lost? Or is there more to it? Is there a bigger message, a broader message that you want to give to people? No, I think you, you just hit it. Uh, it's just remember, just uh, take a few moments that day. If you don't come down to the park, just take a few moments at 11 o'clock or in the morning and just... Just remember um, the veterans that have, have fought for this country, for the freedoms that we have, and, and for those that are still serving around the world in peacekeeping and war zones um, that are still ongoing. Now, I'm uh, fairly new to the city of Kamloops, so I'm just wondering from, from what you know, what is sort of Kamloops' history when it comes to, to armed forces and serving? Is there a pretty extensive history when it comes to that? Well, there is, uh, yes. I mean, we've, um, the Rocky Mountain Rangers... Uh, have sent people uh, into conflict since uh, World War I. Uh, not only that, we have a great affiliation with the uh, 419 Squadron out of Cold Lake, Alberta. Um, the Kamloops Airport is named after the first commanding officer of 419, that was Moose Fulton, uh, and that's why it's called Fulton Field. And uh, the 419 Squadron uh, will be coming in this year. Um, 
as always, and will parade with us as well. So they, we have a great affiliation with uh, with the the regular forces plus the Rocky Mountain Reserves as well. And uh, is there anything that goes on on uh, Remembrance Day to sort of celebrate that history, or is it just looking at that specific ceremony? And, and it's all encompassing. It's yeah, it's all encompassing. It's the ceremony is the main thing that happens that day, and of course, there's a number of places around town that uh, uh, that you can go to socialize uh, and meet some of the veterans and some of the current soldiers and such. And that would be uh, at the Armory um, or the Annavets on Tronquille or our Legion on Lansdowne Street. Do you think, um, I mean, obviously we get a, a good uh, sense of sort of the, the, the meaning behind it and the importance of serving when you go to a Remembrance Day ceremony and you take the time to uh, take part in that moment of silence and, and uh, you know, see the color parade and all that goes along with it. But when you do have the chance to, to go to some of these after parties or whatever you wish to call them and speak to some of the veterans and hear their stories, I mean, that must almost have a, a massive impact on people and, and really... Uh, almost have a, a greater significance about the day when you look back. Like if you were to hear some of these stories and attend some of these sessions and, and hear the realities of sort of what people go through, I would almost feel like that would have a, a greater impact than just being at a ceremony. Not that that's not a awesome part of it too, but just, you know, having that detail. There is that, yes. It's, it's, it's really quite amazing um, when you, you do have an opportunity to talk to um, of an older veteran that's maybe done Korea or even World War II uh, to hear their story. Um, and then you can talk to the younger veteran who's been in Afghanistan uh, and, and hear quite a different story. The, the two wars were, were very much different. And then you have an opportunity to talk to a fighter pilot um, and see what his role is currently in, in Canada and in conflicts around the world as well. So. Yeah, and, and every soldier has a story, and two soldiers can be side by each in the same place, but their stories are somewhat different. So, you know, the, the story from World War II or Korea is much different from the peacekeeping stories and different, again, from Afghanistan and from currently serving members of the Canadian Forces. Um, I wanted to ask too, uh, since you kind of brought it up, I mean, me growing up, when, whenever we did Remembrance Day ceremonies, it was a big focus on, you know, the, the world wars, and that was sort of the veterans we would we would think of, and they're getting older, right? There's not as many of them around from, from those particular times, and now it's sort of that shift to, to Afghanistan and conflicts like that. I mean, um, when, you, when you look at the focus of sort of how people remember veterans, I guess, is there a shift that we're seeing now to sort of these newer conflicts? I think we are. Um I think people are starting to realize that the World War II veteran is is coming to an end. I mean, really, uh, they're, they're, we don't have too many of them left in this country. We have a few left in, in Kamloops, and I suspect that we're going to see a couple of them out on Monday. Um, but yes, the, the, the younger veteran, such as the peacekeeping veteran from from the 1950s on through, through peacekeeping, and then, of course, into Afghanistan, uh, yes, the... There is a shift, and and part of the what we're doing um, when we go and do speaking engagements at this time of year, we're trying to get more involved with the peacekeeper and with the the Afghanistan veteran to go and and talk to the kids at the schools and such, as opposed to um, the older the older World War II vets or Korean vets. 
Um, I, I don't know if you can even speak to this necessarily, but when you have someone that's maybe younger speaking to a, to a younger audience, like in a school, uh, it would almost feel like that might make it a little more real to them as opposed to talking to, to a senior. Not that they, obviously they have that real life experience, but when you're, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old, you don't really necessarily um, connect on the same level as you might with a younger adult. Well, that's very true because uh, some of our Afghan veterans are are the age of big brothers to some of these some of the kids in school, or they could be their uncles or or aunts. Um, so, yeah, I, I do think that uh, the younger veteran, the Afghanistan veteran, um, and the current serving uh, veterans, such as the Rocky Mountain Rangers or current serving Canadian Forces people, you know, when when they get out and and speak to the schools, I think there's a a little bit of a difference there because that age, that age difference uh, it shows. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's uh, about all I have for you for questions right now, okay. Craig. Anything else that you want to throw on the table here while you're here? No, I think we got her. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you coming in, and uh, hopefully uh, everything goes smoothly on Monday. Good. Thanks, awesome. Jeff. Thank you so much. That was Kamloops Legion Branch 52 President Craig Thompson. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. Have a good long weekend. I'll be back here on Tuesday.